Big topics in data architecture call for big conversations. Big Ideas in App Architecture, the new podcast from Cockroach Labs, invites innovators to discuss their experiences building reliable, scalable, maintainable systems. Visit cockroachlabs.com slash stackoverflow to listen and subscribe. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast, a place to talk all things software and technology. I am your host, Ben Popper, Director of Content over here at Stack Overflow, joined as I often am by my colleague in the sense that we are collaborators, Cassidy Williams, who does a lot of work for our newsletter and often joins us for the podcast. Hey, Cassidy. Hello. Excited to be here. It's always good to have you. You add so much color. Your background adds so much neon fun lights in my yeah. life. So we have a great guest today. And if you are a fan of software podcasts, you may know him. Sean Falconer is the head of marketing over at Skyflow, as well as a host of Software Engineering Daily. Sean, welcome to the Stack Overflow podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So for folks who don't know, give them just a sort of quick 10,000 foot flyover. How did you end up in the world of, of software and technology? And it sounds like you do both a little bit of the engineering work at some point in your career, but also now a lot of DevRel and marketing. Yeah, I started uh, my career really focused on uh, on engineering. So, you know, I, I was in high school, sort of in the, the dawn of the internet, uh, the early days. And I missed the dot-com boom a bit, but I became very, very fascinated with the internet back then. And really, I grew up in a small town in Eastern Canada. So the idea that I could suddenly be connected with people all over the world was like, a, like an <laughs> incredible experience at that time. Yeah. And then I could also like learn all this stuff on my own. So I got really, really into just like building websites and playing around with programming and stuff. And then I went into computer science, studied computer science in my home province in New Brunswick and was, you know, obsessed becoming a competitive programmer at some point. And then I, I went to graduate school where I studied artificial intelligence and machine learning. And I was on a path where I wanted to be an academic. So I went and pursued a PhD. So I completed a PhD on the West coast of Canada at the university of uh, Victoria and then I ended up moving to the U.S. to do a postdoc at Stanford University in bioinformatics. And I had thought that I wanted to be a professor or academic. But at that time, even when I was doing all the schooling, 10 years of schooling, basically my entire 20s, I was also working as an engineer on the side because I was also, I enjoyed it. It was a way for me to pay for my education. And then also, I was a little bit nervous that if academics and science didn't work out, I would lose my technical skills along the way. And I saw that happen all the time, like, you know, professors that were brilliant, but couldn't code like a hello world application, for example. And uh, <laughs> I didn't want that to happen to me. And so I kept those engineering skills. And then when I was doing my postdoc, I ended up actually starting a company on the side as the technical co-founder of the company. And I ended up leaving the world of academics after a year to, to build that company. So cool. I bet it would blow a lot of people's minds that that kind of happens in academia for computer science postdocs and, and professors and stuff. But it is a thing that happens because it's so mathy and, and theoretical. Yeah. And I think you get really focused on like what your sort of area expertise, like having a PhD in computer science means that I'm a world expert in this really, really narrow problem that probably only four other people in the world <laughs> kind of care about. And it might not actually have any sort of like industrial impact for, you know, years and years. And there's something really cool about that, but something that right. can also be a little bit frustrating. And I think when I was doing my postdoc, I you know, realized that I just liked like building stuff that impacted people more immediately. And 
even though I was good at sort of the academic side and I could have had a career, I wasn't like waking up Saturday morning, like pumped to do, you know, my, <laughs> my postdoc research versus right. like go and build something that people would actually use. I, I had reached this apex that I'd always dreamed of, of working at one of the hallmarks of like academia and working with a lot of really smart people. But I also was able to take that time and sort of self-reflect and realize that that career path wasn't the right one for me. And so from there, you said you worked as a startup technical co-founder and then that company was acquired. Is that what brought you to Google? Yeah. So it wasn't acquired by Google. Uh, That (laughs) would be fantastic, but (laughs) it was acquired. So I ran that company for seven years and then we were acquired after eight. So around seven years, you know, we, we never grew beyond, you know, 20, 25 people. We were never turned into the rocket ship that we had hoped it would be, but we got to a place where we were, you know, had some level of success in terms of, uh, you know, it was growing, we were cash flow positive and we were, you know, still going along. We had some value, but I felt like I kind of had got all the things that I was going to get out of that experience from like a learning perspective. And I was ready to move on after seven years. So I, I took a step back, stayed on as a year as a consultant, and then took some time to figure out what I was going to do next. And originally I was going to go back into just pure engineering but during the process of exploring things, I was referred to Google as a software engineer. And then when they saw my background where I taught at university and I spoke at conferences and I, you know, written a blog for, you know, over a decade, they referred me to developer relations and they called me and they said like, Hey, we think you would be great in developer relations. I was like, Oh, fantastic. Like, what is that? <laughs> and uh, they like explained uh, the different roles that existed in DevRel at, at Google and the one that sounded really appealing to me was the role of developer advocate. They actually ended up replacing that role title by the time I left as a developer relations engineer. But I like this idea of being able to use my engineering skills, still do some of that, but also tap into some of the other things I've done in my life with like teaching and education and writing and uh, had more sort of diversity to it. And that also appealed to me as someone who had come from being an entrepreneur where you're wearing a million hats. Like the way I learned sort of marketing and business and sales was I was essentially forced to do those things as a founder of a company because there was no one else to do those things. So I liked the idea of being able to kind of uh, continue to stretch myself across different functional areas and developer relations allowed me to do that. And then at Google, I also had this really unique opportunity where I was the first DevRel hire for a new product area. So I got to kind of be a founder again within this massive company. So I got the big company experience, but also got to build something from the ground up and build uh, essentially the full developer go-to-market, developer experience, and build the team. What was the area that you were focused on? It grew into the business communications product suite. So I eventually led developer relations and experience for four different API products there. But originally, I was uh, solely focused on a product called RCS Business Messaging. I've started DevRel orgs for much smaller startups and organizations and stuff, but it is kind of like founding something because you're talking to developers in a very different way than a business would normally talk to its customers. Yeah. And I think one of the interesting things about being like a, you know, someone who's like builds DevRel uh, teams is that a lot of times you have the opportunity to come into a company later in their life cycle. Like if you're sort of building an engineering team from scratch, a lot of times you're there at the beginning because you basically need to like build a product. So like, how are you going to do that? You, but a lot of times DevRel might actually be brought in much later 
in a more mature state, but you're still sort of there doing the founding thing of like, hey, we have to like build this whole functional area from scratch. We have to build a team. We have to figure out what makes sense from like a go-to-market standpoint and how it makes sense for the product that we work on and what are the communities and how do we build that or, you know, essentially harness existing communities to be interested in what we're doing. And figuring out what success means for your org, because that's also very different depending on your audience and stuff. Yeah, there's no uh, sort of one size fits all. Mm -hmm. So these days, you're still doing, I assume, a lot of DevRel at your current company and also working, you know, as a host of a you know podcast that a lot of software engineers are familiar with. What are you hearing about from, you know, folks in the developer community? What are they excited or anxious or conflicted about? You know, what are hot topics that come up for you? I mean, I don't think this is going to surprise anyone, but of course, uh, generative AI and uh, large language models. I was actually what? at a <laughs> never heard of it. What's that? Yeah, <laughs> I was actually at an AI meetup put on by Purcell uh, last night, where they had someone from OpenAI talking. So, in a lot of ways, I actually think that I, I mentioned this last night. I kind of think like all this hype and growth around generative AI and interest in it is going to bring back like meetups that kind of died a little bit during the pandemic. Uh, they've had a hard time kind of resurging, but now I think there's so many people just like trying to learn what's going on here. It actually reminds me a lot of the you know late 90s, mid 90s when the internet was becoming a thing and companies were all just like reacting to it. They're like, I don't know what this thing is, but I probably need to figure there. something. Yeah. yeah, I need to get on there. I don't know what that means, but I need to get on there. And and then they needed to go and talk to like experts or recruit people to figure it out. And we're in the same place now with AI. It's like, I don't know what this is, but like, I know I need to get on there. And now all these different companies and business leaders are just like starving for information. And I also think in the engineering community, essentially what's happened is with these introduction of APIs, like from open AI, it's really like democratized AI to the point where anybody with any level of engineering skills can essentially build AI powered applications, which is really, really powerful and amazing. Like for a long time, I think AI was essentially this sort of more niche thing that you needed a lot of expertise to kind of take advantage of and leverage, or it was essentially associated with academics and science. And now we've sort of crossed the chasm where you can plug in an API and be doing like amazing things with images or videos, just like you would for sending like a text message through like a Twilio API. Right. And I think that is incredible. And that makes it really exciting and makes people really interested in, I think, exploring the area. I do think from like, um, there's still a lot of challenges to figure out, mm-hmm. especially in the privacy security space, which is the, you know, the world that I live in and uh, for my day job at Skyflow. And uh, I think there's a lot to try to unpack and figure out. Yeah. yeah, Cassidy, I would love to hear your thoughts because you're working at a company that deals with this. But people that I've been speaking to have said that one nice thing is that a lot of open source alternatives seem to have, you know, if not complete parity with GPT-4, can at least, you know, get you a reasonable working MVP. And then, you know, you don't have to contend maybe with some of the baggage that comes with being the biggest company in the world that everyone's focused on, not biggest in size, but just like at this very center of the conversation and the political firestorm around it. Yeah. And I think something that Sean said earlier and that about just meetups and stuff in general, I think people are very hungry for information that's real. And whenever there's a hype cycle around anything, like we saw it with all Mm -hmm. the web three and NFT stuff, and we're seeing it with AI and everything, you don't know which things are just people are excited about this hot topic right now, because it's riding the hype wave and which things are actually like, this is what is going to be progressing 
technology forward and, and development forward in, in different ways. And so I think you're right, we're going to see lots of meetups happening, but just a, a lot of people figuring out where should they get information, especially now that social media networks are, you know, a little shaky. People are not <laughs> sure where they're going to be going. They have to figure out where am I supposed to get my reliable information about these things. Yeah, I mean, I think just as it's you know good practice at this point when you're using any of these LLM technologies that you validate the output, mm-hmm. I think you should be validating the output of what you're seeing in terms of thought leadership in the space as well. Because there is a lot of, uh, I would say, like sort of snake oil salesman thought leadership going on right now, essentially, you know, everybody that was doing something that was not successful a year ago is suddenly an AI expert this year. So not all those people are, are necessarily have the expertise that we should be listening to. Yeah. Yeah. You got to go check the receipts. There's a lot of AI experts on Twitter who were formerly NFT uh, experts on Twitter. Weird. So. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so Sean, you mentioned a little bit about, uh, yeah, how the privacy aspect of AI interests you. Tell us a little bit about Skyflow. Like what should developers know about the offering there? Yeah. So Skyflow is, uh, it's been an amazing experience. Like I left Google to join uh, Skyflow about a year and a half ago. And I was sort of ready to get back to the startup world. So we're a series B startup. We had just finished raising our B when I joined. And I like being part of, I mean, of the startup experience because you're kind of bringing people together that are all driven by like the mission of the company. And the mission of Skyflow is really to create the gold standard around data privacy. And our technology is a data privacy vault, which allows you to essentially isolate, protect, govern, use, and even localize sensitive customer data. So you can think of it like the core infrastructure for PII, which is personally identifiable information. And what that allows you to do as a business is de-scope your existing infrastructure from the challenges and responsibilities of essentially data privacy, security, compliance. And where a lot of this came from was, you know, this key insight that our founders had. So they had worked previously at companies like Oracle, Salesforce, Microsoft, and been investors and founded a couple of different companies. And they kept seeing through their own experience, as well as like other companies, like so many companies like struggling with this problem of how do we essentially protect customer data while still making it usable to be able to do whatever the thing that we need to do with it. And despite companies spending, you know, millions of dollars on cybersecurity and even being compliant based on the regulations, you still, they're still suffering data breaches all the time. Mm. Like you look in the Google news any, at any point, any Monday, there's going to be some major data breach by a major company. So it's like, why how are these like really well-resourced companies that can buy or build whatever they need still struggling with this problem? And I think the key insight that our founders kind of came on to or realized was that we have this kind of fundamental misunderstanding about the nature of data. And it essentially is that we treat all data the same, but the reality is not all data is created equal. So some types of data, such as PII or census customer data, is special and it deserves to be sort of treated that way. Yet what we've done historically is just kind of consider all those things as zeros and ones and put them in the same place. And when we put them in the same place, like a database or any data store, what we end up doing is creating this huge sprawl problem where this data ends up all over the place. It's in the backups of those systems. It's in multiple locations where we're storing it. It's in the log files and in any place that we're sort of touching it. So it doesn't become essentially the challenge of like, how do I safely store this information and secure it? But 
it's like you lose track of where and what you're storing over time. And that makes it really, really difficult. It's like the difference between having one copy of your passport that you keep secure somewhere in your home versus having tens of thousands of copies of your passports that you put all over the place and then try to like lock down and secure. Like that's, that, that's <laughs> I know this problem. Yeah. I mean, I would love it if the U S had like a healthcare system where I had a single, you know, QR code and I could go to the doctor and they would scan it and then they'd have yeah. my info. I hand out my driver's license or, you know, scan it into a new thing. Every time I go to the dentist, the doctor, you know, it's like, and now that's everywhere. And some yep. little dentist gets hacked and now, you know, they've got all my stuff and I hate that sprawl. Absolutely. And you look at something like a social security number, which has become super overloaded from what it was originally intended to be used for. And people use it essentially as a cheap form of like user identification. But besides overloading it, like if you were redesigning that system today, you would probably just have some like essentially electronic version of social security number and you give out like a tokenized representation of it to people and then they could use that as a proxy to validate your identity or what to do whatever they need to it and if it gets compromised you just kill the token and it doesn't compromise the original information <laughs> and what we've done is uh besides kind of thinking through the fact that this data is you know different is and at least to these sprawl problems it also the sort of rules of engagement of the data is very different and by putting it together, it makes it really hard to essentially like manage who has access. It's like if you had diamonds in, in your house and you had cheese in your house. Well, the rules of engagement for those two things is very different. If you're over at my house, Ben, Cassidy, I want you to have access to my cheese. You know, Enjoy the cheese. I'm going to rummage through the fridge. Yeah, no, that's one <laughs> yeah, of the exactly. things I do when I get But to if it. I put my, my diamonds in the fridge with my cheese... Well, how do I control access so that you don't have access to the diamonds, but you have access to cheese? Like that becomes really complicated. But that's what we've essentially done with data. So our view of the world is essentially don't put these things together. Take your PII out of those existing systems and put it within this vault architecture. It's similar to how we move from storing API keys and database passwords and stuff like that in our source code or a database. We put them in like a KMS or something like that. It's the same idea around the principle of isolation, but essentially applied to all PII. And with that, the other challenge that comes along with this is how do you then add utility to this information? So it's one thing to secure it, protect it outside of our existing systems, but how can we still have value from it? Like we store this information to basically use it. And the way that we've been able to do that is by really digging deep into and understanding the underlying semantics of PII. So we call things like a social security number, a phone number, a passport number, like numbers, but they're not really numbers. They're data structures that have specific meanings. So if you look at like a phone number in the US, you have like a country code, you have an area code, you have a, you know, a local code, and each component of those has specific meaning, but you don't take a phone number and multiply it by a social security number. And when you break up these data structures into those different components, that dictates essentially the use cases that you want to perform with it. Like the last four digits, maybe a customer support person needs that in order to validate the identity of someone. Mm. Maybe the country code or the area code needs to be used for essentially analytics to know the density of you know where your customers are, are, are or something like that. And by understanding those underlying semantics, we were able to develop a technology called polymorphic encryption and tokenization that gives you essentially the utility to be able to perform all those operations without essentially decrypting the information or exposing your systems to it. That's awesome. I would love to use that to educate people about data privacy who know nothing about it, like my parents or, or someone where, where they're just like, eh, you know, everybody's tracking everyone. I'm like, yeah, but if, if we do this right, then you can at least protect <laughs> some of your information. 
Yeah, it's it's like rethinking the way that you use data. Like mm-hmm. we convince ourselves that we need to see the data in order to perform operations. It's just like at one time we used to store passwords and plain text in our, in people's databases because we thought we needed the password there in order to validate whether the password entered in a login page was the same as the password we have stored. Mm. Eventually we realized that was a bad idea, but how can we support that use case? Well, you can support that by salting and hashing the password. So then you're destroying the original information, but you still have the utility value of being able to validate whether the password is correct or not. By using essentially new types of privacy enhancing technologies, you can perform essentially the utility on the PII while essentially protecting the exposure uh, to the system. So, Sean, speaking of data, I saw on your LinkedIn that you're a Snowflake data superhero. You don't work at Snowflake. So what makes you cape costume? Are you out at night? Like when people are being they're being mugged for their Snowflake data, you jump in and <laughs> not today. <laughs> yeah. Keep, keep the peace. So that's their um, essentially their like community program. They mm. you know designate a subgroup of of people who use Snowflake technologies that have some level of expertise in Snowflake technologies as mm-hmm. uh, Snowflake data superheroes, and then they do a lot of their community work. So Google has like Google developer experts. Salesforce right. has like Trailblazer. So it's kind of a similar program. And their programs, Snowflakes is relatively new. There's only about seventy of us in the world. Mm. Uh, I think maybe there was only 20 some that were introduced in this last batch, which I was part of. And, you know, in some ways I, I, I'm, I think a bit of an outlier amongst the Snowflake data superheroes because most of them, I was in at Snowflake Summit a few weeks ago and I met, you know, a lot of, of, a lot of the group there, a lot of them make their living on Snowflake or contribute a lot to Snowflake. And, you know, I've done certainly contributions there, but my, my day job doesn't depend on necessarily Snowflake, although we have lots of customers at, at Skyflow that use Snowflake in combination with our technology. But I originally got interested in Snowflake after I left Google because I have uh, friends that work there that I mm-hmm. had previously worked with. And then when I joined Skyflow, I kind of started exploring, like, how can I take advantage of the power of Snowflake to do you know, analytics or machine learning or various uh, you know, data science tasks but do it in a privacy-preserving way with Skyflow. And then I ended up pitching that idea as a talk to Snowflake Summit last year, and it was accepted. So I went and spoke at the event. And then my talk was really popular. And I was also probably, if not the only person, but one of definitely a few people who did a live demo. And in my demo, I showed like the full life cycle of data from collection all the way down to analytics. And I did it in a fun way where I created a fake company called Instabread which is like Instacart, but only delivers but bread. bread. <laughs> yes, exactly. So it's on-demand bre- on demand bread delivery. Who doesn't want that? Of course. And um, it essentially took you through the app experience of signing up to be like a gig worker. And it shows like the collection of PII because you got to get paid. You need to you know create an account. You need to validate an identity. You need to do money movement and all this stuff. But how can you do all those things using like a stack that's very familiar to you? You know, React, you know, MongoDB, whatever it's going to be, Snowflake. And do it in a way that is essentially limiting the exposure to any of that sensitive information. And then I ended up giving that talk or different versions of it a bunch of times last year. And each time I was doing that, I was also, you know, indirectly helping promote Snowflake because I was showing Snowflake as part of that experience. And it wasn't really by design that I was like aiming to become a you know Snowflake data superhero or anything like that. But it was just something I was really interested in and I thought other people would be interested in. And I also interviewed a number of Snowflake folks on the podcast I host, and then they invited me to uh, apply for the superhero program. 
So in all of your free time that you seem to have, how do you how do you balance your work and your podcasting, staying current with everything and then just stuff outside of that? Uh, it's tough. Uh, <laughs> I have a one and three year old as well. And I also travel a lot. So it is uh, it is a lot to balance. Uh, I, I think uh, my caffeine consumption has increased with each child and my sleep, <laughs> the amount of sleep I get has reduced. But I still, you know, found time lately to to play around with some of the things like LLMs and, you know, GPT and AI. And that's something that I had some level of background in, 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 in our prior life when I was in academics. And is your academic experience coming back in handy now that this stuff is so in vogue and at the front of the discussion? A lot of the stuff that I was doing back then was, you know, different approaches to AI, although I did learn some like neural network stuff. So I have some base level of understanding of how some of that stuff, so it's not like completely foreign. Like I understand feature vectors and the how a, a vector database would work and, and so forth. But all the, uh, the like deep learning stuff, I was kind of missed that and reinforcement learning, that kind of stuff came in later. But I've done a number of ML related projects over the years. Like I did one where uh, I blogged about where I used machine learning to uh, analyze all kinds of data from the television show Survivor to predict <gasps> the winner of Survivor. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I actually gave a, a guest lecture for a data science class about that project uh, yesterday. That's if it sounds like. If, can you take that to Vegas? I mean, if if, if that show is still running, I feel like you could make a Survivor lot of money is on that. still running, Ben. It's, it's still an running. excellent show, and it's amazing. There's 44 <laughs> seasons. They do two a year, but to, you know it's been going on for over 20 that's, years. That's been a wow. large part of my maternity leave. Because I have a two-month-old. <laughs> we have a lot to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so I've, I've written a lot um, using statistical analysis as well as machine learning for a variety of different things and analytics on the show Survivor and also other things from pop culture. So these were just fun side projects that I did. I have less time for some of these side projects now, but I have started playing around with, you know, essentially building like a privacy-preserving LLM-based chatbot. But the key for me in terms of trying to balance my time is I think I've always been quite good at like focusing and also figuring out like a priority order. It's not, I don't have any special sauce for it. I think it's just something that I was like, comes to me naturally. So I'm able to like really deep dive and kind of block out other things that are going on and focus and crank out a lot of work in short bursts. So that allows me to take advantage of when I do have breaks in my schedule and stuff. And I do manage, you know, like a 12 person team as well as do IC work. So I have to try to figure out how to balance that. But I get up insanely early. I get up around five in the morning to start my day and get a little bit of time in before my kids wake up. Mm. But the way I kind of like learn and and stay up to date is really a lot through podcasting. So it's either listening to the podcast, but even hosting podcasts, like partially redacted, the one that I host for Skyflow that's focused on security and privacy or Mm. software engineering daily. It becomes like a forcing function for me to learn because I have to do research in order to hold a, a proper interview. And the other nice thing about podcasting, both as a host and listening is, my career, I moved you know further and further a bit from day to day engineering, but it allows me to sort of keep a pulse on what's actually going on and not feel completely disconnected from that world and know you know what are the latest technologies, what are people doing, so I can at least talk about it at a conceptual level, even if I'm not necessarily day to day running you know large infrastructure. Cassidy, you included a nice link in the newsletter for next week about writing, and it was from an engineer who just sort of said like. One of the great reasons you should have a blog is because if you're going to write about a technical topic, it sort of forces you to, you know, challenge your learning, make sure you have it correct, write a draft and redo it. And that helps to cement it in your mind. I think probably the same thing is true, maybe to a lesser extent about a podcast. If you actually have a conversation about something and you go back and forth with someone, 
you're way more likely to retain that. And then if you just, you know, kind of skimmed, uh, you know, some text as you were going along. You basically sort of like build uh, within your own, you know, neural network, you're building like stronger connections <laughs> by by having those conversations or by doing the research or doing a little bit. Once more. we start referring to our brains as neural networks, I think the, the pendulum has swung on like, who's <laughs> imitating who. I don't know. It's the best kind of neural network, really. All right, everybody, it is that time of the show. Let's shout out someone on Stack Overflow who came on and contributed a little knowledge or curiosity. A great question badge awarded two hours ago to Kai Selgren, how to remove an element from a vector given the element. This has been viewed over 120,000 times. So a lot of people have learned from this question. Thanks, Kai, and congrats on your badge. I am Ben Popper. I'm the director of content here at Stack Overflow. You can always find me on Twitter at Ben Popper. Email us with questions or suggestions, podcast at Stack Overflow. And if you like the show, leave us a rating and a review. I'm Cassidy Williams. I'm CTO over at Contenda. You can find me at Cassidy, C-A-S-S-I-D-O-O on most things. And I'm uh, Sean Falconer, and you can find me on uh, Twitter and LinkedIn just under my name, uh, Sean Falconer. Great. And don't forget to check out the podcast. Sean, you're one of many hosts that rotate through, or is there like a time when people can always catch you on Software Engineering Daily? Yeah, uh, currently on Software Engineering Daily, we rotate through, so it's not necessarily a guarantee. I do have some <laughs> um, uh, interesting conversations coming up in the AI LLM space that I'm excited about. And I think uh, if people are looking for for something to listen to that actually combined the world of Survivor and AI, I did an interview with Dr. Christian Hubicki, who was on a season of Survivor, <laughs> about ChatGPT and generative AI, which is one of our most popular episodes. That's so cool. Wow. So this person is on Survivor, but is also in the world of data science? He is a, a robotics professor. Okay, cool. Uh, so he has experience in AI, but in the world of basically building robots that walk around and are able to navigate our world. I know I, w- I know what Cassidy is going to be doing. That's so awesome. Today. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. And we will talk to you soon.